Welcome to the Season 4 of Word. You've committed to ensuring this podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region continues. Word has grown as a direct result of your contributions to KJZZ. Consider a gift of $10, $20, maybe even $30 a month to help ensure that this kind of programming reaches you and others. If you're already a member, thanks. If not, it's easy to become one. Just go to kjzz.org and click the Donate tab. Whatever is in your budget is the right amount. Thanks very much. And now, on with Season 4. Word, I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. 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 Was the word. From the KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, the pandemic continues to present challenges for creatives. In the last couple of years, I was really practicing performing poetry in an authentic way. And then this virus, this pandemic happened, and I'm having to come to terms with that scented journey. We'll talk to a returning guest about it. Plus, we turn our attention to younger audiences and readers. Having books in the house, it's a privilege. And there have even been studies that talk about access to books and early literacy having an impact throughout life. But first, puppets. The Great Arizona Puppet Theater in Phoenix has moved to a drive-in model for its shows. The theater's co-founder, Nancy Smith, and her daughter, Gwen Bonner, who is the assistant artistic director, joined me recently to talk about the adjustments they've made and how some classics have been updated for modernity. I think there's something about puppets that's just classic. People like them. Kids like them. It's fun. They're not trying to be anything they're not. You know, the wolf is the wolf. That's what he is. And uh, it's, I, I guess that's why it's been so successful. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I'm assuming that, you know, you're referencing Little Red Riding Hood. And recently you did Hansel and Gretel. Do you try to create original material, Gwen, in addition to adapting classics like Hansel and Gretel or Little Red Riding Hood? Yeah, we do. We're currently working on a new show for the drive-in. It's going to be called Dinosaur Picnic. A lot of the shows that we've been doing currently for the drive-in are a lot of the original shows that my parents started doing 37 years ago. And that formula was based on what was successful, what were good titles that we knew people were going to want to come to see. And it was also the big, big shows that they had. They were originally performing in malls and outside at fairs. And and schools. And big assemblies. Yeah. Assemblies. And so... They needed something that was going to be big and up high and could be seen from wherever. And so when this pandemic happened and we needed something that was going to be big and up high for everybody to see from the drive-in, you know, we went back to some of our original shows. So it's been interesting kind of going back, touching up some of these shows that some of them haven't seen the light of day in over 30 years. And, And then, of course, trying to make something new with it. And, you know, like Dinosaur Picnic so that we can have something new and fresh for our audiences as well. Now, I know nothing about the art of puppet theater in terms of like things like blocking, for instance, because while I understand that in live theater with human beings on the stage, 
I got to believe that in a closed environment where the puppeteers are very close to each other, you've had to really adapt things because of this coronavirus pandemic. We have four full-time puppeteers here, but Gwen and I are mother and daughter and we're in the same bubble. So we're the ones doing the big two-person shows together. Are most of your shows two, three people at most, something like that? Yeah, a lot of our shows started out as just two-person shows because the company just started as just my parents. Right. And um, a lot of our shows more recently have become one-person shows just because it keeps it economic for when we're going out to the schools. And, you know, as puppeteers, we've got two hands, so I can do this show by myself, really. Um, but with these big shows, you know, these uh, most of our classic shows and older shows are, are two-person shows. And so... Thankfully, yeah, my mom and I decided that we were going to be in the same bubble and be very careful and very cautious. And so we're performing together in the stages. The scripts and everything were designed for two puppeteers working a puppet each. So, so we had to think about when we develop new shows, how many puppeteers it would take to operate. Is there sort of a mid-range age group in terms of word choices that would be in a particular script that you try to look for? And what would that age group be? We have a lot of different shows and some of them are recommended for really little kids. Some of them are for older kids. Uh, We have some that are nonverbal so that language won't be a barrier if you're just learning English or or even maybe if you if you're deaf, you can you can still appreciate the puppet show. Lots of times we do things based on existing stories because we feel like the classic fairy tales, if there's a reason that's been a favorite story for hundreds of years, we try and kind of look at it and figure out what is it that really speaks to people in this and then develop a script that's going to to be true to that, but also make it fun, you know, for everybody to watch and sure. Um, make sure that everybody has a good time, you know, adults and kids too. But sometimes we do put age recommendations on uh, the different shows. Yeah. And uh, part of that journey, as you kind of indicated there, is maybe taking something that's sort of timeless, but I don't know, the language is out of date or maybe some of the character interactions are out of date and you want to bring it to modern day, you know, as far as the theme is concerned, it's timeless, but maybe the plot or elements of character have to change a little bit to adapt to a 2020 audience. Definitely. And sometimes uh, the old stories have have things in them that you're like, oh, no, you know, (laughs) we're not going there. Hansel and Gretel is an interesting one that, that we just did, too, because I mean, I remember the story when I was a a child that the mother talked the father into abandoning the children in the woods. And I thought that was pretty horrible. But but, um, I had found the libretto written by that was Humperdinck's opera. And they they used kind of a different device in that the milk got spilled and the kids got sent out to pick strawberries and uh, the mother wasn't an evil person. And I was like, yeah, I like that a lot better. So we, we will try and make things uh, more suitable for today's audience than, you know, traumatizing people with evil mothers who want to abandon their children in the woods. Yeah, we're not into it. You know, uh, I think one of the interesting things about Hansel and Gretel too, that's often overlooked is in every version that I've seen or read, Gretel's the hero. And 
that just didn't happen. You know, boys were always a hero or some knight in shining armor kind of came around and Hansel gets himself stuck in the cage. And so Gretel's got to push the switch in the oven herself. And uh, I always liked that. I always appreciated that Gretel <laughs> kind of was the one that saved the day, but you're absolutely right. You know, 2020 has a whole lot of, I mean, time in general has a whole lot of issues and the classic fairy tales can be very problematic one of the shows that we're unfortunately not able to do during the drive-in because of the casting, but the frog prince. And this is all kind of about a forced kiss. And we changed that script a whole lot so that the show became more about friendship um, and being kind than keeping promises and keeping your promises Mm -hmm. and keeping your word than about just kissing a frog because he won't stop asking you to, you know, you want to respect classics and keep classics classic as much as you can but you also have to look at things and say oh wow this is dated and we are not in the business of trying to offend anybody well nancy and gwen i want to thank you so much for coming to word and talking to us about the great arizona puppet theater 37 years and running and uh keep it up thank you so much thank you you for having us you can find out more about the great arizona puppet theater at our website word kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You're juggling a lot of different tasks, setting up your child's Zoom call for school, logging into that meeting with your boss, maybe ordering groceries online, and you might lose sense of what's going on beyond the four walls of your home. Ask your smart speaker to play KJZZ so you don't miss what's going on out there. Just say, play KJZZ. KJZZ's car donation program accepts all types of vehicles to support the programs you rely on. Whether it's a boat, car, truck, or RV, donating is easy and a great way to support your public radio station. Details at cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Dr. Monica Brown is the daughter of a Peruvian immigrant and teaches multi-ethnic literature at NAU. She's the author of about two dozen children's books, and I talked to her recently about her latest release entitled Chiruco. And I began our discussion by asking about the title. It's a Quechua word, which I'm really excited about. Perhaps the first children's picture book in the United States with Quechua in the title. We'll find out what that means here in just a second. But the first question that I have is, when did you really first gain a love of reading? Was it as a child like most of us? Absolutely. Books from my earliest memories were incredibly important to me. I was very fortunate because I had an aunt, my Tia Becky, who was a kindergarten teacher. So she kept me well supplied. Nice. I am sometimes remiss that other children aren't as lucky as myself in that both of my parents read to me. Uh, Some people don't find books until later in life, and then there are those kids who do find books early, but it's basically through the process of self-discovery. How long have you been writing children's books? I have been writing children's books for about 15 years now. I started when my daughters were toddlers um, and around three, four, and I looked around and I saw that there were stories I wanted them to hear, so I decided to create them myself. But I agree with you that having books in the house, it's a privilege, and um, there's there have even been studies that 
that talk about access to books and early literacy having an impact throughout life, which is why I try to support our public libraries and putting books in the hands of children. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's just something that we really do take for granted, those of us who were fortunate enough uh, to have either parents or, as you say, elders in your family that exposed you to a love of reading. And how many titles do you have? I should have double-checked before I talked to you, but I think I'm approaching something like 25. I have quite a few. It's a a deep passion, and I have fiction, picture books, and I have nonfiction books, and I also write chapter books for children, for older children, in addition to the scholarly work I published You're also a professor of literature and teach multi-ethnic literature at NAU, among many other things. How do you shift gears between that type of academic writing and then, you know, trying to write for children? I I simply could not do that. I'm childlike, but I don't think I could write for children. Well, I bet you could, because here you are supporting literary arts, and you're also a journalist. I was a journalist as my first job, so I've written as a professional journalist, as a scholar and literary critic, and for children. And in my case, they're very much related because some of my very first book I ever published for children was a nonfiction picture book about a poet, Gabriela Mistral, the Chilean poet. And I have blended my love of writers like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or the poet uh, Pablo Neruda with my children's books. And my ability to research has made it possible for me to really deliver quality books to children and hopefully inspire them later on to discover uh, who Gabriel Garcia Marquez is. I read 100 Years of Solitude my senior year of high school, Cien Años de Soledad, and it changed my life forever. I went to university as a declared English major. And um, so I love that I can, I would say I'm introducing the concept of magic realism to children, but they are more capable than adults to (laughs) holding within their hands the magical and the real. Yeah, very well said. It is very much related that's beautiful. I teach Latinx literature and I get to put create it for children too. And you're also the daughter of a Peruvian immigrant. And I'm assuming that's part of the reason why you wanted to write this new release, Shiruko, about a Peruvian archaeologist. The book is illustrated by Elisa, is it Chavari? Chavari, yes. Chavari. And, you know, while we do focus more on fiction on Word, and you've outlined some of the other uh, things that you've written, Biography is certainly a literary art as well. I'm just curious about the topic of archaeology and is one of the reasons why you wanted to write about that because kids are sort of naturally curious and, of course, archaeologists have to be curious. Absolutely. Um, There are many reasons I wanted to write about this remarkable man. As the daughter of a Peruvian immigrant, I want to represent the beautiful contributions of people of the Americas, all of the Americas, North, Central, South America. And um, it's very interesting the way I was first introduced to the figure of Julio Citeo, who was otherwise known as Charuco, which means brave in Quechua, an indigenous language still spoken by millions of Peruvians. 
But the truth is my mother, uh, who was born in Piura, moved to Lima, Peru as a teenager, and she lived on Julio C. Teo Boulevard in Lima. And so her family had moved out of the house but every time we went to visit, my mom would definitely have one of my tios drive us past the house on Julio Citeo Boulevard, even taking pictures in front of it. And so that is where my first curiosity came from. But here in Arizona, where we are on lands, indigenous lands, and uh, I've always had a great respect for the indigenous communities here. And Julio Citeo was the first indigenous archaeologist of the Americas. He was indigenous Peruvian. He grew up speaking Quechua. His introduction to archaeology was kind of interesting because he was an adventurer. That's why they called him Charuco, because he was brave. And he and his brothers would sometimes discover ancient skulls and things, and uh, they would earn money by sending them to Lima for study. And it's just very interesting that when he received a scholarship and with the help of his aunt, who was a maid in the presidential palace, he went on horseback to study because he was in a remarkably smart young man. He discovered article articles in journals about those very skulls he would collect as a child and ended up writing a thesis on the way that his, in, his own indigenous ancestors performed brain surgeries on them. And wow. he grew up, yes, uh, trepanation, successful ones. And so he got his medical degree and he uh, wanted all of Peru to understand the brilliance of the indigenous past, but really the living history, mm -hmm. because colonization, he thought, was a catastrophe for indigenous people. Right. And so his research was very important to him. And then he, again, received a scholarship to study at Harvard Anthropology and he really changed perspectives and did things like make these indigenous artifacts and beautiful textiles, so many discoveries. He made them available to the public, to everyone, by helping found the first museum of archaeology. Well, let me pick up on a point that you mentioned with respect to colonialism, because Spanish colonialism is certainly a topic in the book. In fact, it's talked about with respect to language. And so the book is bilingual. We should also say that. As far as the topic of colonialism, I'm kind of curious about what age group this is suited for, because I wonder how old you have to be to really understand what that term means. I think children should be aware of the history of the land they live on and the people that surround them here in Arizona and certainly in Peru. So I can share with you how I broached what seems to be a really complex and challenging subject of colonization to children by sharing a few pages of the book. Sure. As a boy, Julio was brave and curious. This earned him the nickname Charuco, which means brave in Quechua. 
Sharuko was always seeking, searching, and exploring the caves and burial grounds he found in the foothills of Parikaka, a snow-covered peak in the Andes. He was fascinated by the bones and pottery and other mysteries hidden in the earth. Nothing scared Sharuko, not even the skulls he and his brothers uncovered in ancient tombs. For centuries, the indigenous people of Peru were treated unfairly and faced discrimination. This started in the 1500s when Spanish soldiers invaded Peru. The Spanish were looking for gold, and when they found it, they claimed the land and its riches for themselves. They established control by killing many native Peruvians and rejecting their belief systems. The Spanish destroyed temples and cities, all in the pursuit of wealth and power. Although the Spanish tried to destroy Peru's indigenous language, culture, and customs, they were kept alive and passed on from generation to generation by families such as Sharuco's. When he heard the stories of his ancestors from his father, Sharuko felt proud of his heritage. He thought everyone in Peru, not just indigenous people, should know these stories and be proud too. Well written. And so you sort of bring that topic in full circle there and maybe give folks a deeper understanding of investigating their own history. Because, you know, frankly, we're in a time where identity and ethnicity, at least in recent memory, has never been more of a focus and perhaps even more under attack than I can remember in the last several years. Is my surmise correct? And was that integral and part of your decision to write this book? Absolutely. I think that we are all shaped by our identities and experiences. And there is a famous critic and scholar, Rudine Sims Bishop, who wrote that books are sometimes windows offering views of the world that may be real or imagined, familiar or strange. These windows are also sliding glass doors and readers have only to walk through an imagination, in imagination to become part of whatever world has been created. And a window can also be a mirror and transform the human experience and reflect it back to us. And she was wise. She was an African-American scholar who I very much am inspired by because I think that what I see in contemporary politics is that people don't recognize in each other, you know, the full humanity and diversity of experience. And I think that literature, whether I'm teaching it to adults, young adults at Northern Arizona University, or I'm sharing stories with children. I think learning each other's histories and walking in another's shoes create more compassionate people and help us want the best for each other instead of be threatened by each other, which informs a lot of the rhetoric that I see in contemporary politics, fear and uh, a sense of being threatened. Right. And just this sense of undefined otherness, uh, for sure. One of the things that I loved in listening to you read and part of the thing that I think makes a very successful children's story is, of course, to draw older people in along with it. And maybe adults learn something by reading this to their children as well. 
So, um, Dr. Monica Brown from Northern Arizona University, author of Sharuko and many, many other books. I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Thank you so much, Tom. You can find out more about Dr. Monica Brown at our website, word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast. Go to kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ's Sun Up today. You're getting into the swing of things. A new school routine for the kids and your morning commute has turned into a morning workout. And KJZZ is right there with you, keeping you connected with the day's news. Now more than ever, you need to know what's going on with the pandemic, with elections, and everything that matters. Trust KJZZ as your source for all the things you need to know. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Anna Flores is a Latina-American poet, writer, performer, and ASU instructor. We welcome her back after a previous appearance in April 2019. Of course, a lot has changed since then, particularly how writers connect to audiences and even themselves. I began our discussion by asking how technology affects her writing process. It's been really chaotic and, you know, time is just not the same just don't consume time the same as I used to, I guess. (laughs) Everything is moving very fast. Yeah, I mean, it's different for different folks, right? Um, On the one hand, I've talked to other creatives who say they have actually appreciated this isolated atmosphere where they get more time to focus on their work. And again, I think it obviously depends on from one person to the next or maybe the type of creativity. But I wonder for you if you've found anything remotely like that i'm more conscious about that idea of having more time to write like not but but you know what i realized was that i did write a lot while i was commuting because i didn't drive that often i more so took like the shuttle to campus and so that i realized at the beginning of quarantine that's where i wrote and read and so my desk area has become a place where so many different types of work get done that I almost have a different appreciation for the commute as this sort of sacred space where I was just moving and writing and reading and eavesdropping on people. And so <laughs> I guess I'm just not as inspired the same way that I used to be. And no, there's I... so much more like, I guess, grief, yeah, you know, right. to, to try and understand that it's a way different process. But I do have friends who have always kind of wished for something like this, obviously not under these circumstances, but just more time. Yeah, I forget where I read, if it was the New York Times or the Post, but this one musician was talking about just that, having more time to practice. Mm-hmm. Of course, you always wonder outside of a digital platform, when does the time from practice get to an actual performance in front of a live studio audience? And I've been talking with lots of people. Obviously, you're very well known throughout this region, and you have made a habit in the past of performing for folks at various readings. 
How has that impacted you? I'm sure you miss it. Yeah, I think I'm realizing more again that it's such a communal activity to read and to listen and to prepare poems for, you know, like the reading series, which is still online, but in Tucson they have something called the reading series. And that transition is different. Whereas before I used to talk to my friends who were on the same maybe set list about what they were reading, if they had anything new, if I had maybe read something that they sent me that they were going to read and then you get to just see people and it's a different sort of visceral feeling being in a space like that, maybe at Palabras where everybody's watching and you're listening. That act is not the same. And for a little while I was trying not to learn Zoom I guess because I had a sort <laughs> of resistance. <laughs> I had a sort of resistance to it. And I thought if I learn it, then I'll normalize it. And I don't want to do that. But I don't really have a choice now. I'm like, okay, we're in this for the long haul. So I can't run away from our new mode of communication and performance and community too. I hate to admit it, but this is where we're moving. And um Seeing people's faces as they read is something so beautiful. Yeah, to read their emotions, to imagine what's going on inside their head. And it's also similar in a classroom for those of us who've taught. You don't really get a chance to see that light bulb, for instance, go on in a child's head, uh, Mm -hmm. whom, whom you might be teaching, for instance. Like you say, at a reading, there might be an audible gasp, for instance. And it's just something that, for people who perform, they know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, or for audiences who are used to listening, they know what that's like. But you're right, this is a new sort of reality. Last time we spoke many, many months ago, we were physically in the same space in a studio. Right. And this may sound weird for a person who makes a living in radio, but I think I'm an even better listener than I ever have been as a result mm-hmm. of using these modes. But it's still something kind of antiseptic if you will about this right yeah it's different I mean there's a whole feeling of like being like surveillance normalcy and also I excuse if you hear my dog snoring in the background I just (laughs) but um I feel like maybe being on, on a camera is so different than being in person with somebody because there's so many different ways that we communicate with each other that don't involve necessarily even our face or our voice but mannerisms and just the way that the air in a room can shift can feel heavy or feel light it's all of those different elements of a conversation that are different now and now we have lag Unless we get those five G towers, of course. But, um, <laughs> I, I've you know, heard they caused uh, the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, yes, they did. So, but they didn't get the Wi Fi any quicker. So, um, but yeah, it's just it's different. It's different. It's very different. And it, I had an interesting transition out of focusing on poetry and just the page. I used to really pride myself in like. You know, I I am a page writer. I didn't, a lot of my best friends went through the slam route into poetry and I never had that experience. So I tried to kind of 
really hold on to the page as my comfort space. Of course, I have a background in theater, so it didn't make sense for me to really just stick to that. And so in the last couple of years, I was really practicing performing poetry in an authentic way. And then this virus, this pandemic happened, and I'm having to come to terms with <laughs> what that stunted journey was. And um, trying to find different ways, of course, to use this form of the online conversation. Well, I also like what you were talking about, you know, in terms of the difference between these things. You talked about the changes in the air, for instance, and just all of those other sensory things that we use to interpret what's going on in the world as human beings. The smell of the air, for instance, things that you might see out of the, out of your periphery, for instance, other ambient noise that's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and when I think about, for me personally, plenty of other writers do this as well, but just like I don't do people watching anymore because I don't go anywhere. Right. And a lot of times sitting in a sort of crowded space, watching people gives way to inspiration for poems or short stories or characters or what have you. I'm sure you're finding something similar. Yeah, I really did enjoy eavesdropping on people a lot <laughs> in like coffee shops or buses and people say really interesting things and I don't think I've done that. I've just had to settle for like my mom's gossip, which is, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> she's running out of material quickly. So <laughs> um, I don't know. Or also being in a space where you're around a lot of loved ones. Sometimes it just like there's just this glance or like you just smile at somebody and you don't really have to say hi or get up from your seat if you're like at a poetry performance, for example. No, just those little things of like empathy and care and checking in that we do with each other. They're a lot harder to do online. You know, I'm watching, I'm in this space where we're all just a bunch of icons and I can't really tell whether or not somebody that I care about is having a hard day. And I feel like in person, that's a lot easier to just sense that something is a bit off. I'm so amazed, I guess, even just now speaking about it at all of the ways in which we care for each other that require that being in person. And heading into this no-touch technology is hard because it's 100% valid. And at the same time, I can't help but feel that maybe we're not talking about the ways in which some senses are perhaps even like endangering that ability to be able to check in. I think that maybe we would need to pay attention to the way to do that now. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing we'd like to do as we go out is to listen to some of your work. I wondered if you have um, a poem of your own that you might share with us. So recently I wrote something called A Letter to My Landlord. This was in April. And it was during this time where me and a couple of my neighbors, I live in an apartment complex, an artist's apart apartment complex, that's what it's called. So a lot of people who live here are um, independent contractors or, you know, they have their own business. They work out of their apartment. And we were just trying to, first of all, understand what options tenants had 
um, who had been just fired or furloughed. And in the midst of trying to write that letter, I realized what I'm always struggling with being someone that has both um, a legal background in writing, but also a creative background in writing. There are just some things that aren't allowed in those more so um, legal terms. And so I wrote a different letter that I felt was more true to the emotional knowledge that we were dealing with. And so it got published in The Nation and it's called Letter to My Landlord. The days are screaming at the tops of their lungs, coming from the center of somewhere far away and deep inside. I have been trying to write this letter to you, dear landlord, due to COVID-19, our anxieties are constellating into clusters of moonlit shock, embracing splendor. Outside, a pair of shiny elevator doors hang from a white crane, an abandoned pendulum in the sky. Under the swaying, many of us are only able to hallucinate the act of sending you a check on the first. I think of dates and time as the evening's mountains in silhouette, a consecutive line. I imagine scaling the dips and peaks into a Morse-coded message, but today the hiking trails are packed with people who all had the same idea, and everybody becomes a hatch mark in a throbbing line graph. As a precaution to prevent further spread, and to cling to as much of our current health as we can. Many of us have chosen to stay home as we have been strongly advised to. Many of us have been sent home. Are you home with your pets, with your family? I'm rationing my brother's faces indefinitely because they're not on Facebook or a Wi-Fi plan and the US-Mexican border like many others, is closed to non-essential travel, a desperate expression of divine entry, an imagined immunological edge. But border cities are not clean cut. Many of us have made a commute across that frontier, now a metal carcass with restless canines and masked agents. Here, instead of ordering N95 masks, we are trying to ensure a roof over our heads. We have come together so we may represent our interests as people who give you money to claim a place to sleep. We are writing to request three things. One, that you refuse to evict tenants from any of your properties. Two, that you suspend rent in full for any tenants who are unable to pay. Three, that you turn toward a humming, red regard for other human beings by denying a life contorted into stacks of possessions on your shelves. On March 30th, the state of Arizona issued a shelter-in-place order, an official on-record gasp, stamped with a golden seal and signed by a nervous politician. In an unprecedented statement, the same governor who had previously tried to cement a ban on sanctuaries that help protect undocumented immigrants from being torn from their communities said this, nobody should be forced out of their home 
because of COVID-19. A recent news article read, the discomfort you're feeling is grief. Many of us are scared for our health, let alone our means of living. We hope you will do what is right, and this hope is a hope that does not rely on a virus to wake people up. No virus can sustain a revolution in anything other than a human body. We are prepared to know your true name, to stand six feet apart in solidarity, to stream together like an outburst of laughter in a new world's throat. Signed, Anna Flores. Wow, so much to unpack there that I think I would do it injustice if I tried to focus in on any one part. But again, that is in the nation, and we will link to it on our website. Such amazing work, Anna Flores. We want to thank you so much for coming back to Word and catching us up on your life and pursuits. Best of luck in teaching this fall. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you so much. You can find out more about Anna Flores on our website, word.kjzz.org. Portions of Word have been nominated for an Edward R. Murrow Award. We appreciate your continued support of the literary arts in Arizona and the region. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.